Hello listeners, Kathy Lawless, Life Story Curator, bringing you the podcast series, How Did I Get Here? A series of interviews designed for people just starting out in their careers, people in transition or possibly feeling stuck, and giving them access to the stories of people who've been there, done that, so that they might be inspired with some new ideas, or maybe just comforted knowing they are not alone, that everybody starts somewhere and everybody goes through times of transition and times when they feel stuck. Today, I'm very excited to be interviewing Jess Sato. Welcome, Jess. Thanks so much for having me, Kathy. This is going to be a really fun interview because Jess is the co-founder of Two Smart Girls. So I think you can tell already her kind of maybe snarky, savvy, spunky attitude toward things. And so I think we're going to see that through, through, her, whole, through her whole story. But um, so Two Smart Girls is a business consulting firm that she co-founded. And, uh, but before we get into what that is, uh, I always like to start with the icebreaker questions. Uh, so we get to know you as a person and kind of how you got shaped to where you are today. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up, uh, what your family was like, how many siblings, where you were in the birth order, and how you think all that shaped you as an adult. Okay, so I grew up in a smaller town in northeastern Oklahoma, just outside of Tulsa. And I lived there my whole life until I went off to college, um, except for a three and a half year stint when we lived in Egypt. And um, oh, wow, that's not a, a common country that I hear people say they went to live in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so small town Oklahoma to, you know, developing country Egypt. And um, I will say that was a huge developmental experience for me. I was about 10 years old when we moved there. And I moved back with my family um, right before I started my freshman year of high school. So some very formative years spent outside of the boundaries of a pretty conservative Christian home. Um, I am the oldest of three, and I definitely think birth order is alive and well in our family. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm very much a traditional oldest child, type A, go-getter, high achiever, high expectations. Um, and and that has really been a huge part of my life. I mean, as we get into this, you know, my whole story is about um, the push to achieve, not necessarily because I, you know, wanted to be great or to achieve things, um, but that's just really a part of my personality, the drive to, to you know, reach a goal and then move on to the next thing. So um, yeah, small town Oklahoma, um, happily married parents. My dad passed away a number of years ago. Um, and I, I would say we had sort of the typical American middle-class upbringing. Except for you spent four or five years. <laughs> yes, that, that is asterisk. <laughs> okay, so what sort of activities did you do as a youngster? And then what activities did you do when you were in Egypt? So I kind of want both. What did you do in Oklahoma, but also going to Egypt, I would guess changes everything. Yeah, so I grew up playing softball. That was sort of my chosen sport and um, band. And right before we left for Egypt, I, you know, in fifth grade, so I say this sort of tongue in cheek, made the cheerleading squad. And I just thought it was like the coolest thing ever. And um, when we went to Egypt, we were, we went to, for the very first couple of months, we went to an Egyptian school and it actually was not a good fit. It was a really big challenge for my brother, um, who's the middle child. And we ended up getting a private tutor, um, a British woman who I'm still, still connected with now, even years later. And, um, 
And so we didn't do a lot of what I'll classify as extra, you know, traditional extracurricular activities. We really were more, you know, free to just explore. We lived on a hotel grounds um, in a villa complex. And so we had all the traditional hotel amenities that were sort of at our fingertips. So a hotel pool, we lived um, on a on a lake and, um, you know, bikes. I mean, so that kind of thing. We were just out exploring a lot. We spent a lot of time outside um, when we were in Egypt. And then, you know, went back, um, moved back to the U.S. and I did speech and debate and um, student government, and that's, you know, sort of those traditional things, and, and volleyball in high school. And volleyball, okay. I, too, am a volleyball player. So what took your parents to Egypt, or what took the family there? Yeah, so my dad worked uh, for an engineering company, and they had gotten a contract to win, or to build um, a an, an air base for the Egyptian Air Force. And it was supposed to be a one year kind of deal in a, you know, in true Egyptian fashion, it turned into three and a half years. <laughs> is there a different time? There's regular time and then there's Egyptian time. Is <laughs> That's that exactly time? right. That's exactly right. So yeah, we we were there for three and a half years. We were there during the, the first Gulf War. And um, like I said, you know, really a formative experience for me. I actually fell in love with Egyptian culture. I learned to speak Arabic and actually it ended up being one of my majors in college. So I, I speak Arabic, um, although I'm a bit rusty these days. Um, but I, I loved um, sort of that international experience. And it really, I mean, I, my, the very first time I ever got on a plane was to fly to Egypt. So I had never, you know, had sort of these nice little intermediate experiences. It was like Tulsa, Oklahoma, to Cairo, Egypt, and then, you know, a drive into um, a smaller town on the, on the Suez Canal. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, that, what a great experience. You know, you hear today, a lot of times parents are like, oh, I don't want to move because I don't want to disrupt my kids. They're at that, you know, at those formative years. And then you have the other parents who are like, oh, I got this opportunity to go. I like a friend of mine went to Ireland for two years and took her family and it was a great experience. And her son again was, I think he was middle school going into yeah because when they moved back he went into high school but you know just great experience for him and his brother and and uh you know and then they met some lifelong friends and yeah it can be really really a fun time and and you know really get you to appreciate I think what um each country has to offer right what yeah. what you get in the United States but what you also get by being in another country and um wow how powerful at that age well very yeah. cool yeah, and you know, one thing I'll say, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, as we're talking, but you know, as I, you know, I've, I've written a couple of blog posts now about, you know, not trying to, I mean, in fact, I call them stop trying to find your passion, because I found over the years that I could never have ordained the path of my own life, right? And yes, I was a part of the process of choosing, you know, making decisions, but when I look back, I can see a very distinct thread. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we uh, start talking about um, my experiences in Ethiopia and then, you know, some work I did with a nonprofit anti-bullying organization. But, you know, I look back and I think I could never have just created this random experience where I lived in Egypt for three and a half years, you know, in some of the most formative you know, parts of my life and then studied abroad there again, you know, like you just, I, I think that's part of the, the beauty of looking back, right? So I love the title of this podcast, How Did I Get Here? Because, you know, 
no one, you know, rarely do I find people who are like, they have like literally plotted out every single step and it's, you know, perfectly lined up. Like when I look back, it's very disjointed, but there's a clear thread that marches through the whole thing. So, um, you know, in, in preparing for our conversation, I, I did some reflecting on, you know, what, what, what experiences did I take from each of those things that have made me who I am? And um, like I said, I just could never have predicted, you know, back in the day that I would be <laughs> where I am, right? I mean, it's, it's, yeah. so it's, it's such a cool, cool concept what you're doing yeah. here. Well, and I do love that, that looking back and finding the thread, I can't tell me how many interviews I've done where people said the very same thing. You know, if you talk about where I started and where I ended up, you would never have connected the two. But when you look at all the dots in between, you know, and there's, um, I forget who the, I'll have to research who said this, but you can't connect the dots forward. You can only connect them backwards. Yeah. And it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, okay. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. Definitely. Extrovert. Okay. And on the fun meter scale of one to five, one being couch potato, five life, the party, where do you sit? Gosh, I'm probably solidly between the three and the four. I tend to be a little bit on the serious side, but when I cut loose and then I'm just like a ham bone. <laughs> then you're a seven. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to be around you when you cut loose. <laughs> and then where are you on the risk meter? One to five, one being low, five high. So when it comes to business, I tend to be high on the risk meter, but I find that when it comes to my kids, I'm a little bit more conservative. And that could be because we engage in some sort of like borderline uh, dangerous activities. We're big rock climbers. So we're outside hanging from ropes a lot. And so I think of that as um, sort of calculated risks that I put in the, you know, these are known risks and we take all the precautions. And so we tend to be a little bit more risk averse in those kinds of things. But when it comes to business, I tend to jump in with both feet. With both feet. Okay. Well, I love, I love that. And many people do explain there's sometimes there's a difference between, you know, personal, family, professional, but then others are like, no, I'm total hundred percent adrenaline junkie and everything I do. <laughs> So, I am not an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> I love how what we find is those three questions, introvert, extrovert, the fun meter, and the risk meter, how it plays out through your whole story, you know, as you start to t describe the decision you made, how you got out of being unstuck, and, and you know, all that stuff. So, okay, well, let's talk a little bit about what you do today as the co-founder of Two Smart Girls, and then we'll get into, how did I get here? Yeah, so Two Smart Girls is a obviously a duo. There are two of us. My partner, Christy, is down in Dallas, Texas, and I'm in Colorado Springs. And we, and we'll talk about the story that got us there, but we work with corporate women who are in the process of transitioning out to build their own businesses. So women who want to be entrepreneurs because they're looking for more freedom or more flexibility, could be more fulfillment in their life. We wanna help them build that dream out. And so we provide the foundational aspects of business building all the way from, you know, what's the dream to let me, you know, I'm ready to launch it out into the world and go with gusto. So helping them navigate that transition of leaving or have just left and, and, and launching their, their dream out into the world. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to, to hear all the, the details of that because obviously that's what you've done. 
and now yeah. you're coaching others on how to do that. So, yeah. so when you look at when you were junior high and high school, did you always want to be a business consultant or leading other women uh, when you were growing up? No. So that's, you know, I go back to my, my time in Egypt. I had a very clear path in my mind. I was going to be an international lawyer and I was going to, you know, work in the Middle East. And I, at the time I ha had been studying um, Arabic when I lived in Egypt, the first go, and then came back high school, I was studying French. And when I went to college, I purposely chose a school that had an Arabic program. And there were actually very few at the time. So this is pre 9-11. Um, and in fact, when I graduated, there were only Arabic, um, eight Arabic majors in the country. So um, I realized starting very quickly in college that I actually did not want to be an attorney. I worked in the law school library and I just saw the mania that was happening in there. And I thought, I want no part of this. And I realized though that I, I loved Middle Eastern politics. I loved um, facilitating conversations and I loved language, but I realized also that um, studying two languages at the same time was really challenging. And at the end of, of the four years of college, I ended with um, a double major in Arabic language and political science with a middle uh, with a focus on Middle Eastern politics. I graduated in 2001, right before 9-11. And I, you know, ended up getting a job um, at a major aerospace company um, the day before September 11th. So everything that I had been building, um, I, you know, was kind of tipped on its head, right? I didn't, I, I wanted to do Middle Eastern politics, but then 9-11 happened and everything shifted and it got really garbled. And what was really being asked of people was not something I felt good about. And so um, I found myself in a completely different kind of role when I finally graduated from college and landed my first job. Yeah, the timing of that, very interesting. Yeah. Um, but, and you probably had such a different perspective of it because of what you had studied, where you had lived for a time and, you know, just being who you are. Well, and, you know, I think all of us, you know, are impacted in different ways by an event like that. But, um, you know, when you only have one side of that event or yeah. one side of what you think was the culprit uh, yeah. or culture of that culprit, then, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stereotyping yeah. and blaming and yeah. There was and fear and, and panic and mm -hmm. and all in all all justified, right? I mean, I wouldn't when I look back, you know, in the moment it was very frustrating, but I can see very clearly why people felt the way they did. But as you said, I had a very different perspective. I had dear, dear friends who were um who lived in Egypt still, who um, you know, had I had never experienced what I was seeing in the media. I hadn't, you know, none of that was my experience. And so it was, and now I look back, I think of it as a bit of a gift to be able to help educate my colleagues on Islam and, um, you know, Middle Eastern culture and some of those other things that were very much twisted up in all the reporting, um, especially in, the, in that first chunk of time. And again, you know, I, I look back and I think how, I would never have been able to do that if I hadn't 
live there, if I hadn't studied abroad, if I hadn't spent four, an additional four years really digging into the whys and the hows of, of the region. So it, you know, it's kind of funny that I landed in an environment that enabled me to be able to share that um, at a time where it was really needed. Well, yeah. And so you you said you're working for an aerospace company. Yeah. So they're, they're in shock because, you know, the, that was kind of shut down. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. so tell us about then, how, how did you get that first job and what was that like then? So, um, like I said, a major aerospace company and um, interestingly enough, and we joke about this now, in fact, I, I just recently got um, a kind of an online kudos board for my very first manager back in the day, he's retiring. And we've joked about this many times over the years. At the time, my now husband, he was my boyfriend then, um, was working in this department, in this company, and he saw that they were hiring. He thought it would be a good fit for it. And so I won't say that we, we were not, um, we didn't lie, but we were not super forthcoming about the fact that we were dating. Oh. And so, I, you know, I went he to the interview. I ended, up, <laughs> I ended up getting hired and then it came out that we were like, in a very serious relationship and we were engaged not too much longer. Um, but it was just kind of funny. So I, I credit my, my husband um, with helping me get that job. But I uh, found myself doing um, what's referred to as decision analysis. And um, it's a field of work where you work uh, alongside groups who are trying to make significant decisions about future problems. So I happened to be working on the military side of, um, of the company, and we were working alongside the US military to determine what were the future needs for our American warfighters. And, you know, so an example of that would be, you know, if we were looking at um, what needs to, what does the next F-18 need to look like? What does it need to be able to do? I would help facilitate the conversation between all of the key players so that when we got done with that process, we would have a clear idea of it needs to be able to do these 10 things and it needs to be able to do them to this degree. And um, so I was never an expert in, in the subject matter that they were talking about, but rather in the process of making those decisions. And I did that for about five years before I moved on to my next job. Wow. Wow. I've yeah. never even heard about a job like that. So you back to your facilitation of a conversation, but yeah. these are big decisions and you're what? You're like 21, 21 22. 22. Yeah. Yeah. And you're facilitating these military, military discussions and okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and where did you get the confidence to do that? Well, and so <laughs> maybe you should know better, right? That you, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wish, I mean, there are so many things I could say about the confidence aspect. I think early on, I, I was just sort of, you know, gutsy and, you know, thinking, oh, I'm totally invincible. I know what I'm talking about. Um, but there was always an undercurrent of like question, like, should I really be doing this? Do I know, you know, do I know enough to be doing this? And um, one thing I will say is over the years, I've become much more coachable than I was at that age. And I, that's probably true of most people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, 
so I think, you know, in the early days, I was, you know, riding high thinking, you know, oh, I, I know I went to a really good school. I had really good grades. Like I'm, you know, I'm a good study. I know how to, you know, do this. And I was, I'm all, I have always been good at building relationships. That's one of my superpowers is, you know, relationship building and creating a space very quickly where people can kind of let their guard down and we can move forward in the process. And that has really served me well. I think over time though, I've realized, wow, I wish I would have known that then um, because it would have been a very different experience and what I could have brought to the table would have been different, but you know, that's, that's life, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Well, and I, I think too, because you weren't an expert in any of the topics, it sounds like that's what you said. Mm -hmm. There wasn't that pressure that you had to look good. I mean, you were really about facilitating. So I mean, that's the focus. So you never had an agenda. You weren't trying to get your idea across. So that takes a lot of pressure off, I would think. Yeah, because it, does. it was, you know, everybody knows your role in the room and that you're there for a reason. Uh, to get the best out of all the people that were there and to get right. their, their expertise. So yeah, I could, I could see how that would be better than if you were actually an expert in the field trying to facilitate that and then trying to question other people's expertise or have we, have we gotten to the right level of, you know, brainstorming, et cetera. Et cetera. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, boy, that's fascinating. Well, okay. I know there's way more to go to the story. So we got to start talking about some of the other parts. Yep. So do you want me to just, dive into yeah so talk about then kind of what happened next okay so i right around that five-year mark i got pregnant and you know had my son and as i came back from maternity leave i realized i was at a point where that work had sort of run its course like i just couldn't quite get back into the swing of it and i recognized that i I wanted to do something different. And, and actually, probably the last, well, it was the last year of that work, I was actually working on um, my master's in teaching. I, I really, when I looked back over my life, I, I had kind of always felt a drift. Like I had a plan. I was going to go climb the corporate ladder, do all the things. Um, but when I peeled back the layers, I realized that one of the things that I always wanted to do was be a teacher. And I found myself in this place where I was facilitating these conversations. I wasn't teaching so much um, as guiding people through a process. And I, I missed the teaching aspect. And so about a year before my son was born, a year and a half, I thought, you know what, I really want to be a high school social science teacher. So going back to those political science roots, history, and that sort of thing. Um, it was right at the time where No Child Left Behind was really at its height, you know, the highest point. And I just did not want to be a part of the administrative craziness that we see is a total hallmark of that era. And I ended up not getting my certification, but I did finish my, my master's. And um, between that and having my son, I just realized it was time for a change and, and um, ended up at that same company, they have a, a really beautiful leadership development center, a job opening came up and I thought, wow, if I can do teaching for adults, um, even better. And I landed that job um, and fell in love with development work. So I was still doing group facilitation, but now I was, imparting information. So it was all around the traditional topics that you would expect in, in leadership development, personality styles, customer focus, strategy, 
um, you know, employee engagement, all of those things. And I, I really, really fell in love with that. Um, I had my second, I had my daughter um, somewhere in there. And toward the end of that five-year tenure, so I tend to work in five-year chunks, three to five years is sort of my- You're not the seven-year, not the yeah. seven-year, you're the five-year. <laughs> okay, well, you did mention you were an overachiever, so okay. yeah, that would make sense. So um, right around the five-year mark, I just hit a wall. I was burned out. I was frustrated with office politics. Um, in fact, a year before I ended up leaving the company altogether, um, I, I actually refer to those as the dark years. I was very disengaged. And it was the first time in my life where I was at odds with myself. I, Like I said, I'm a high achiever, very goal-oriented. Um, when I am doing a job, I do it like 110%. And I found myself very uh, disengaged. And it was awkward because I was teaching about employee engagement, you know, so yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I was like just so torn and I was, I felt like I was going through the motions and I, I came home one day and I told my husband, you know, I, I need to quit this job. And he was like, okay, how about we build a plan? He's a planner, <laughs> he's an engineer. Um, and, and so we took that, that, that chunk of time, we, we built a plan to help me transition out, paid off all our, you know, student loan debt, we basically ended up debt free. And I left corporate life. And when I did that, I, I didn't have a truly clear plan. There were some things that I could have done. Um, and at the time I had a, you know, little side gig doing um, cookies and cupcakes. And so I, I built that into a small business that I loved, but again, it wasn't my passion. You know, I, I really, really love developing people, helping people develop. And, you know, I reached a point in the cookie cupcake business where I, I had received a, a Facebook thing from someone and it was a recipe for some cupcakes. And I realized three years in that I had not made a single cupcake for fun. Like everything was, was business. And the more I thought about it, the more I was tired of making Dora cupcakes and <laughs> Elmo cupcakes and all this stuff. Right. And, and so I, I told my husband once again, like, you know, I need to do something different and, you know, God love him. He is so gracious and just says, okay, let's just figure out what's the next thing that you want to do. Right. And he, he understands the cycle that I'm in, right. Of like, three to five years. um, and right about that time, the company that the, the aerospace company that I had worked with, they reached out and asked if I would consider coming back as a consultant. And that is um, the, the beginning of Hypertunity is um, what I will really and truly classify as my first real foray into entrepreneurship. I had the cookie and cupcake business was something I was doing for fun, but I, you know, it was like I said, for fun. Um, Hypertunity was me stepping into entrepreneurship. Um, what's funny about that is I, I did it all in a rush. So sort of the traditional things that I would coach the women that we work with now on and, and like really being intentional about setting things up well, I didn't do any of that. Um, partly because, you know, they called, I, I won the RFP and, um, and it became a situation where I needed to just create a legal entity so that I could get paid. And so I, I did that and 
I did that work for about seven years. I still own that company and I do occasionally do work under that umbrella still. Um, but right around that seven year mark, again, I hit that window where I just wasn't loving it. It was, everything had sort of become rote. I was, there was no challenge. I was teaching the same things over and over again. Um, you know, the audience always changes and that's what keeps it fun. But I realized I, I had kind of switched into complacency or what we talk about in our business is sort of just being in the default space. And, and then I got an opportunity to do leadership development work in Ethiopia. And Oh, now you get to go back to your, your international Middle East. Yes, there. exactly. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was an eye-opening experience in so many ways, not because of the developing nature of that country. I mean, I, like I said, I, I had a lot of experience in an international space, especially in a developing country. Um, but for me, it helped me realize a couple of things. One, um, well, I, I should back up, you know, Ethiopia is a, is a relatively closed country and um, they take a lot of pride in being the only African country to never have been colonized. And because of that, they tend to be closed. So you won't mm -hmm. see a lot of outside investment. Um, so right as we made that, made that journey, and I say we because it just so happened that I did a, a bunch of that work with my now partner, Christy, and we've known each other for years. Um, we, we got that contract and, and headed it up alongside a small team. So, you know, we, we made that journey and um, really, I'll say this is, you know, in an era where we're talking a lot about Black Lives Matter and um, racial baggage, I had, and Christy and I both had made a very concerted effort. Neither of us wanted to walk into this country um, and pretend like, you know, we were like the white saviors. We didn't want to be, you know, seen, not that we didn't want to be seen as the experts, we were brought there as the experts, um, but we wanted to be very sensitive to the way in which we presented ourselves. And it turned out that um, I had this really interesting experience where on our, on our final trip there, so I had been there off and on four different times in 2017 for about three and a half weeks over the course of about six months. So you can see I was there a lot, yeah. Um, yeah. big part of 2017. And I had this really powerful experience where one of the women who worked in the office um, of this academy, she, I said something like, oh, I, I want to get a cup of tea. And she's like, oh, I'll get it. And I had seen us all as equals. Um, I never wanted them to feel like they had to like do things for us because we were all partners in this process. And she said, I said, no, no, don't worry about getting this tea. Like, I'll get it. It's no big deal. And she's like, no, but I really want to. And I was like, no, I don't want you to go get that for me. And she said, she put her hand on my arm and she said, when you don't allow us to serve you in this way, it's, it's not allowing us to embrace part of our values, which in Ethiopia, hospitality is a huge value for them. 
And it just hit me in the gut that I had been operating with, you know, a, a, a sensitivity that was not necessary and that was actually counterproductive to what I wanted mm. to bring to the relationship, right? So I had wanted to be like, oh, yes, we're all equal. And of course we were. But in my quest to do that, because of how, you know, we operate here in the U.S., I had this situation where I had actually inadvertently been offending them. And it was just a huge learning about making sure that you understand the cultural context in which you're working and that you don't bring baggage with you that's unnecessary. And I've reflected on that a lot since I came back. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's like sometimes you don't even know what your baggage is. Like you were saying, this equality thing is a, yeah. And, and is that more of a, a female thing than a male thing from the U.S.? And is, yeah, and it's a U.S. thing maybe. I, yeah, very interesting. All those little cultural norms that you yeah. probably studied up on before you went, but there was that one that got missed. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, you know, Ethiopia led us to start Two Smart Girls. And, and the story behind that is um, one that now I look back and I think, I cannot believe that I that this was an issue, but it, it's a very prevalent issue. And so, you know, right before our final trip, we, we got an email from the Ethiopian um, company that we were working for. And they said, okay, we need to cancel this trip. We were literally leaving like 24 hours later. And, you know, as consultants, that was like three, three to four weeks worth of income that we had been planning for. So in our case, that was $54,000 for this trip. And um we were just spiraling like oh my god what do we do and we had a contract of course and in the contract we had a two-week cancellation clause and so now the question became do we ask for them to honor the contract because they had said you know we're going to reschedule which ultimately they did um but it came down to the principle of the matter and um, I had owned Hypertunity at that point for about seven years. My partner had owned her business for probably 17 or 18. And neither of us, if, you, if we look back and we're really honest, neither of us were really thinking like entrepreneurs. We were just doers, doing the work. And you know, we were all of a sudden faced with this situation where we had to ask ourselves, you know, can we really ask for this money? And we consulted with a lot of people, you know, some people said, just ask for half of it based on their experience. Others were like, no, don't worry about it as long as they get, you know, reschedule the work. But we just kept coming back to, this was a gaping hole in the revenue that yeah. we had projected. Walk time away for that. And so right. you didn't have anything that you could just plug and play. And right, yeah. exactly. And so finally, you know, we got on the call we, we got a call scheduled with the, with the person and, and raised this issue. And I could tell that what we were saying was not landing. And finally, I just said, you know, this is business. It's not personal. And, you know, we need you to honor the contract. And he asked a question and then his answer literally changed my life. He said, so you think that you should get paid for work you did not do? And I said, yeah, I do think you should pay us because that's what's in the contract. And he said, 
okay, I just needed to hear you ask for it. Wow. And needed to hear you ask for it. Right. Interesting. Just needed to hear you ask for it. And it was the first time that I had actually thought like a, an entrepreneur, like a CEO, right? This is the contract. I'm holding firm to it and I need you to honor it. Not because it's personal, not because I feel good about it, but because that's what's legally required. And his response was so startling because I had spent two weeks mired down in stress and drama about whether or not to ask for it, whether I should ask for it. And, you know, him saying, oh, just needed to hear you ask for it as if it was like as simple as snapping a finger. And ultimately it was right. I mean, and, and so we billed for it. He paid us. Um, we scheduled the trip again. We closed out the contract. Um, and I kept coming back to this lesson. Like it was just as simple as asking for it. And how many times had I looked back over the course of my career and not asked for something that I wanted, a raise, um, a, a, a job change, whatever. And this helped me realize that, um, that I could have been doing more. And um, Christy at the time was having the same thoughts. Like I've been doing this for 17 years. How did I not realize it was as simple as asking for it? And what about all the times I hadn't? And we came together um, the following year talking mostly about how could we continue to collaborate? Cause we had completely separate businesses and we met up in Phoenix in April of 2018 with two businesses and we left with one. And that is where Two Smart Girls was born, really with the intention of helping women, professional women, learn how to ask for it. Um, and the more we have evolved as a, as a business, it has really become helping women entrepreneurs learn how to build their businesses in such a way that they have intention, that they know their worth and their value, and that they they feel confident selling and representing themselves and staying visible. And so, um, you know, what, what was, you know, how can we collaborate has become this, this huge business venture. Um, and we've been on that journey. Well, I guess technically it'll be three years in, in April. Wow. So yeah, when you look back at all those dots, they do line up. They do yeah. line up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and there's, um, one of the things that I did sort of um, around that same time um, in the midst of 2017 was this really cool experience um, where I worked for this not-for-profit not called No Bully, and they do empathy-based bullying uh, prevention. And I found myself at one point standing in a classroom um, in Minnesota, uh, in Minneapolis, in a Somali school. Um, it was like students who were um, Somali refugees. And I was in this small, dank cafeteria talking to Somali moms. So they're in their hijabs. They don't speak English or barely speak English. They've got their little strollers. Um, and standing next to me is um, a Somali translator. And at one point, I realized as she's speaking Somali that I understand what she's saying because Somali is very close to Arabic. And it was like, 
out of body almost where I, I was like looking at her, I'm looking at these Somali moms and I'm thinking, they don't look like Egyptians. They look more like Ethiopians. And so it's like all this weird melding of our experience, of my experiences where, you know, I, I understood the language, I got the culture and here I am in Minnesota talking about oh, bullying, yeah. right? It's like, I couldn't, I couldn't make that up. So when I talk about like, you can't connect the dots, you know, in a, in a forward fashion, right? It's only in the back end that you see the connecting and how there is this common thread that weaves through with, you know, international perspective, awareness of others, um, wanting to see other people grow and develop and be the best version of themselves. Really, that has been the hallmark. When I really look back and kind of get down to brass tacks, that has really been the hallmark of, of my experience. And each step has brought me closer to a place where I can do that. And, and now Two Smart Girls is really... The, my heart is, um, you know, when I, I think about that, this business, it really is me expressing the fullness of what I hope and want for, for women. Wow. So it sounds like you're in your dream job. Like this is a trifecta of all of the components coming together, the consulting, kind of the teaching language. I guess you got to throw in maybe politics and culture too. So what's What's the word for four versus three? Yeah. The, Perfect, uh, I don't know what the, the quad. It's the quad. And that's not the very quad, good. yes. <laughs> well, very cool. And you've shared so much along the way, you know, what was going on in your brain, that that scratchy feeling, you know, getting getting unstuck. Um, it's funny, I, you know, you mentioned that this was occurring for you. Did did your husband have similar scratchiness? I mean, did you ever you know, kind of coach him the opposite. Okay, well, how do you get out of what you're doing? Or did he have a, a different kind of experience with his career in life? Yeah, you know, he he's kind of followed, he has been with the same company for over 20 years now, but he has had his own ebbs and flows. And um, one of the things that he did, um, he was feeling sort of that scratchiness. And one of the things that he had always wanted to do was get his PhD. This was like a lifelong goal. It wasn't necessary for his job. Um, and an opportunity presented itself. And he took about three years. They weren't completely off from work, but it was like, you know, one day a week <laughs> to maintain benefits um, since I was self-employed. And um, he ended up getting his PhD. And we've had, you know, different periods where we've done things like we uprooted our family and moved from St. Louis after living there for almost 20 years to Colorado uh, about four and a half years ago. And um, I would say both of us are good at supporting the other when we feel that scratchiness. And, um, you know, I would say he's in a period where he is a little bit stuck and trying to figure out his next steps. And so we've been exploring what that looks like as I'm you know, continuing to build two smart girls, right? Because it, it, there's a, a very interesting tension. And I don't know if you've seen this with, with other people that you've spoken with, but there's an interesting tension in a marriage when one person is living their best life and the other one is feeling stuck. And 
to navigate that tension, right? There's a lot of open, you know, for us, it's always been open conversation, intellectual conversation about how do we get unstuck and pushing the other to take risks or to do hard things when, um, you know, when they're uncomfortable. And so that's, that's the space that we're in right now. I feel like I'm living my best life doing the thing that I'm truly passionate about. I've got, you know, basically teenagers for kids. So we're sort of in that, you know, more independent phase and he is trying to figure out his next steps, right? So he has kind of been patient while I have, and supportive while I have been building two smart girls. Um, and now I feel that we're about to hit a, a, a turning point where, you know, I'll kind of hold down the fort while he explores a new aspect of his career or, you know, doing something more with his PhD or what have you. So, you know, for us, it's a bit of a balance. Yeah. Great insight on describing that, um, the tension, so to speak, between um, where you are at different times. And sometimes your, your seven-year itches might have been at the same in syncness, right? Yeah. And if you graduated college about the same time, start those jobs. I mean, it can be, that would be kind of scary if you were both scratchy at the same time. And, you know, both of you are like, I need to leave. No, I need to leave. Well, who gets to first, <laughs> you know, when you create that plan? Well, you know, I haven't really dove into that with my other interviews, but maybe I do need to chat a little bit more about that with the interviewees because, um, and many of them bring up, you know, that they have uh, some sort of support with a partner, um, you know, that is a big part of their life because they couldn't have done it without. Right. Um, and it isn't just about, well, one career is always the surviving or the most important. Right. It's, it's really about the family unit, right? So right. navigate that together. Well, well, Jess, this has been so, so enlightening and um, insightful. So thank you for sharing all that. I, I, I have a whole bunch more questions, but we probably need to start wrapping up. So uh, you've already, you know, talked a little bit about some of the themes in your journey, but if I could ask you to share what you think has served you best over the years in terms of maybe it's a personality trait or a habit or just maybe a mantra or something that you'd like to operate under, what, what do you think has served you best? That's a good question. Um, I think for me, it is maybe two things, curiosity, you know, constantly asking what if, and a willingness to just make a decision. I try not to live too much in the gray. I'm, I'm very much a black and white kind of person. Not that I don't see gray, but once I have gotten an itch, so to speak, you know, once I, once I feel the need to move, I don't let the grass grow under my feet. I really do just make a decision and go for it. And so for me, it's being curious about the possibilities and then making a decision and taking action. That's definitely two things. Um, and that may all be underscored by just a, an innate drive to constantly be growing and developing as a person. Yeah, one, it's maybe this is some of that confidence that you talked about too early on. Yeah. Um, I do know that being an indecision is a very uncomfortable place to be. And I, yes. I don't like being there either. And I like to make decisions quickly, but it's kind of, you know, you know, as you talked about on the risk meter too, um, calculated, right? You have to, you know, what are the pros and cons? So you're curious maybe about, well, what's the possibility, but then maybe you're probably curious about, well, how would it work yeah. you know, thinking through things? And then now let's just do it. Yeah. And I would say, you know, that the, the 
the thinking through and needing to see see how it could work to me is it, it's a double-edged sword and, and if you actually if you ask my partner she would say that that this is a source of tension for us and that we are constantly navigating because i like to understand not just the big picture but how things will work um, and sometimes there's not enough time to think through all the details it's like you need to pull the trigger so you know i'm constantly having to navigate my 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 natural tendency which is to to make a decision with also wanting a lot of details and not analysis paralysis but i i just get bogged down sometimes in trying to figure out the inner workings when in reality the inner workings sort of work themselves out as you go i just like to know those things in advance and you know sometimes that's just not possible so um you know i have to constantly navigate that big you know the, the sort of the macro view with the micro the need to understand the micro pieces of how it will all fit together yeah i would say i, I could track with you my brain works that same way i'm like oh this feels right we definitely should move in this direction but let's think through the pieces you know and and you know how you just take yeah, a little bit of time to do that it doesn't have to be too much time i know we're going here but um but then right. there's also a lot of times you can never the you know you can think it all through and then something totally different happens and pulls you in a different way, you know, that people want maybe something, you know, different that you offer than what you had started with. And if you just spent all that time building it out, that may not have been, you know, worth exactly. the time it took to build it out. Just go down the path. Just launch I it. And it spirit. <laughs> okay. Well, and then any other words of wisdom that you would share with people who maybe are stuck or in transition? Yeah, I, I think one thing that I would say, you know, that I have learned over the years is just do one thing, right? It's mm. when you're stuck, it's easy to get bogged down in trying to figure out all the pieces, right? I mean, I just said that, but I have found that if I just do one little thing to move me forward a tiny little bit, it doesn't even have to be the right thing, right? But just one little thing. And you know, sometimes it's so it's so minuscule, it's like I'll set a timer for 20 minutes and I'll do something, research or you know, kind of plot out a path, whatever it is. Um, you know, just take some kind of action. Action begets action. And and I would say action also begets clarity, right? We, we are looking for the answer so that we can take action. But I found that you get the clarity by taking action. So, you know, like I said, there's no, to me, there's no wrong decisions. They're just decisions that you learn from. And so for me, if you feel stuck, take action in some way shape or form even if it's the little tiniest little thing that you think this couldn't possibly make a difference it will make a difference in your mind um it will be moving you forward so glad you shared those examples like i said i was just going to ask you well, what would one step be i remember when i was in transition um one thing i did first off is i i didn't like the term transition so i found the term free agent someone has suggested mm -hmm. that i'm like oh i like free agent better it yeah. just felt more empowering but other things that I would do was, I mean, I was just in a funk a lot of times, but I was, I found if I was talking with people, having coffee, uh, I found reading a book and it didn't have to be the right book. It just had to be any book was any kind of a business book or a leadership book or a career mm -hmm. book. It's amazing how it can just get you out of your head 
and that thinking that you have to have it all figured out to take action. But, but I was taking action because I was, I was reading. I was then, it, it caused me to research something else and look into something else. So um, I really love your, your advice there or your, your wisdom about take action because when you're in action, it does feel more productive too. Yeah, it does. And you, I mean, you know, part of the malaise that comes with feeling stuck is that you're not moving. And so to me, any kind of movement kind of helps nudge you out of that malaise. And, you know, like I said, I have, you know, done a lot of work on how do you help people, you know, because we see this women who are building businesses um, get stuck in all different places in the, in the journey and get mired down in the research and the this and that not wanting to make the wrong decision. And it's been my experience now, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for quite some time. Obviously I was in, had my own corporate career before that. And I found that there's really no wrong decisions. I mean, unless you're bordering on like illegality and like ethical things, right. There's really no wrong decisions. And if you're willing to just step into a little tiny bit of discomfort um, and just do one little thing, make one little decision, then the next day it becomes easier to make the next decision and the next decision. And you can be looking back and saying, okay, is this getting me where I'm trying to go? No, okay, let me, take, let me make a course correction, right? That's, that to me is the beauty of, of the journey, right? We get to decide, we get to course correct, we get to, to shift, right? I mean, if I look back, my whole career, it was, I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. I had no desire to be an entrepreneur. And yet I hit a point where I realized it wasn't serving me anymore. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be on a different path. Now I could have, you know, said, no, I, I, this is the path I chose. I'm never going to deviate from it, but I would have been miserable. And yeah, it was uncomfortable to make the leap, to leave the, you know, the corporate salary, um, all the benefits that go with it. And it, it was a slow process. I planned it out. We, you know, started with little decisions, evaluating our finances, starting to pay down debt, making it so that we could make the leap in a, in a way that was not as, as painful. So I just think going back to, you know, taking some kind of action, you get clarity, you make a course correction, or you press forward. To me, that is the best and easiest way, I say easiest in quotation marks, um, to, get un to get unstuck. <laughs> wow, you, you summarized that so well. What was occurring for me was your, uh, your, your point in your life where you talked about you weren't uh, in the facilitation job where you were feeling scratchy, and then you decided to get your master's. But you had a conversation there with your husband about, this isn't working for me. And he's like, well, time out, let's make a plan. And yeah. so look, you're taking action. You're making a plan, which probably helped you get through. I can get through this because I have a plan and I know where I'm going. But then you also then went to get your master's because you wanted to be a teacher, which was again, a plan and a goal. But then you kind of shifted after you got the degree. Again, you were taking action, you know, learning and growing yourself. And then where did that lead? So you're right. You're, uh, when I see you, each time you take action and then it, it caused you to um, probably get out of that really uncomfortable position, but then, you know, feel like you're moving forward, but then it also opened up new opportunities and it kind of went, Oh, wait a minute, I could go a different direction. Where does this lead? And so, yeah, it's kind of amazing. You don't have to just automatically stick to whatever you kind of get that goal is what you're, you know, the action you're taking is going to benefit you in so many ways is what I guess I'm getting out of all. Yeah. 
Well, again, Jess, I, I could keep chatting with you, but we do, we really have to wrap up here. So thank you, thank you for sharing your story and your insight and all of this wisdom. I think, uh, you know, again, listeners are going to be able to relate to what you've been through, but then also kind of maybe get some ahas and some, some real takeaways on, oh, what else could I be doing? Maybe I do need to take that class or, or look into uh, researching that company that I've always wanted to join, but have been kind of waiting for maybe I don't have the qualifications. Well, maybe I do. You just have to really look into it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, we'll wrap up on that note. So um, listeners, if you enjoyed today's interview, please subscribe below. So you'll be alerted when other interviews are published. And if you have any questions for me or for Jess, you can post them on my website, lifestorycurator.com. And when I post this interview, I'll post her social media information so you can get a hold of her should you want to work with her or uh, again if you have any questions uh, again I just I love hearing these stories uh, they move touch and inspire me and so I'm sure they're going to move touch and inspire others so on that note uh, listeners and Jess have a great day stay safe stay well and let's keep sharing these stories take care